There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. Hello, everybody. I'm Bill Roden, and you're listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. I'm coming to you from the ESPN studio in New York, and I'm on the line with my co-host, Alana Bearfield from Xavier University in Louisiana. Hey, everyone. So I'm from New Orleans, where it never goes below 60 degrees. But it's raining like hell, right? (laughs) Yes, it is now. And... Last, but of course not least, I've got Tiffany Hoyt from Howard University. Hey, what's good, everyone? I am from sunny California, but I'm in stormy D.C. right now. Uh, we are extremely exhausted with Kavanaugh hearings uh, down at the Hill. Haven't heard much on campus, but I know it's going down, down the block. Yeah, I know. You're right there in the, in the, in the socket, in the heat of things. Uh, we've got a great lineup for you guys today. First of all, we're going to speak to uh, with Jason Meehan about his experience as a black student at a non-historically black undergraduate institution and, a, and law school. And he's going to break down what's happening with uh, Bill Cosby and Brett Kavanaugh. And in the second half of the show, we're going to talk with NBA scout Khalid Green about how recruiting for basketball has changed and is really getting ready to change now that the NBA is going to start <laughs> drafting high school kids again. But before we talk about all of that, uh, homecoming season is just around the corner. HBCUs typically celebrate with a week's worth of events, gospel shows, comedy shows, step shows, R.E.B. concerts. Uh, so my question for you all is, what's your favorite homecoming event? Uh, Alana, start us off. Um, so fashion show, hands down. Um, I led a fashion show my spring semester. And basically, people just pop out on the stage. People have their outfits to go to the, the actual show. But we do it in the big, huge convocation center where um, basically a thousand people will maybe come to it. So it, it's a big event. Yeah, for me, Alana, it's all about the R&B show for me. I know we didn't get it last year, but I remember my freshman year, we had Jasmine Sullivan and Joe, and I consider myself an R&B baby. I know that in our generation, a lot of times we we miss the buck as far as R&B music, but that is literally my favorite, and I hope we get somebody like Daniel Caesar this year. Uh, You know, um, know, I went to Morgan, and I played football, so every homecoming, I was always sort of like entertainment. I was always playing. And my thing at homecoming was just hoping that I didn't get embarrassed so that somebody would invite me to the party. But, of course, that was in dark ages. Um, Well, I think we all have an embarrassing homecoming moment. Really? What was yours? (laughs) Yeah, tell me about that. What was your embarrassing homecoming moment? Oh, man. I don't even know if I want to expose that. I think there's enough people on campus that saw that. Well, what happened? No, 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 Tiffany. Come on. (laughs) Come on. Okay. All right. Okay. So it was my freshman year, right? And it was raining. 
And, you know, D.C., you can't trust D.C. streets. And I'm a veteran at this. And what I mean by that is the fact that, like, every, like, few inches in D.C., it's like a like a little bit of sidewalk lifted. It doesn't matter if you're downtown, if you're northwest, it's always, like, a brick loo something. Homecoming. Not paying attention, talking. Completely fell down. Down the... And it's like, there's there's, like, this slope going down the yard. And it was just like, but... You know, I played it off. I was real cool. Even though I I went down to one knee, we'll just say that was a protest moment. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, yeah, hey, hey, uh, Jason Meehan, we, we, you know, you went to Northern Illinois for homecoming. Now, the stereotype is that, is that, and I, I know you play football in Northern Illinois, the stereotype is that PWIs for black folks isn't as exciting as homecoming for uh, HBCUs. But what, did you have any favorite homecoming moments? Is, is that stereotype true? Honestly, I, I could say it is. I mean, we, we didn't really have a, a big homecoming ceremony thing. We didn't have, you know, big time. We don't have any R&B shows. You know, I don't have any uh, bad memories of my homecoming. <laughs> Usually there's just a, a game that everyone comes to, you know, and I mean, everyone's in town for that. And, you know, after the game, you know, everyone's going to be there and definitely go out and, and have some fun. But, yeah, well, I, I can't say that we have any uh, great traditions. And, and even here at... Um, at the University of Wisconsin, I don't even think that, I mean, homecoming is definitely a, a big time of the year, and, you know, there's a huge game, and everyone's there, but it's not necessarily, I mean, yeah, they don't have concerts, it doesn't sound as lit as, as you guys' experience was. <laughs> well, you know, what? one of the things that was an epiphany for me, because like I said, and I don't know if you found it, so I played, you know, uh, I was playing football every year at Morgan, and what was the epiphany for me is after I got out of school and was in the stands once, I realized that nobody even paid attention to the game. <laughs> that it was basically, the game was almost like background music. And I'm like, wow, we're up here like beating each other's brains out and y'all are worried about the parties and the concerts. It was a school day. Yeah, right. <laughs> you're right. Exactly, exactly. Hey, well, listen, um, I, I, we're, we're going to, you know, from that sort of lightheartedness, we're going to talk about something um, that sort of preoccupied I guess not only just the United States, but probably the world uh, last week. Um, the, the, the verdict of Bill Cosby and the, the uh, confirmation hearing of uh, Kavanaugh. Uh, it, it's, it's really not that often that you've got two major sexual assault cases play out on the national stage at the same time. But last week, it happened. You had, you know, you had the actor and comedian Bill Cosby, everybody's dad, formerly, uh, was sentenced to serve three to ten years in a state prison, in addition to a $25,000 fine. And then nearly 150 miles away in D.C., on a different day, uh, Dr. Christine Blaisley Ford and Supreme uh, Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh testified about sexual assault. And it was almost a tale of night and day because you had one person saying something happened and then another person saying it absolutely did not happen. You know, Ford says she was assaulted by Kavanaugh, and Kavanaugh said he believed that something happened to Ford. He just didn't do it. So to help us make sense of all this, uh, we brought in uh, a law student, uh, Jason Meehan, uh, who's a, a law student at the University of Wisconsin. Hey, hey Jason, uh, formally, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. Uh well, one thing I would say is, I mean, it's clear from all of this that we are right in the midst of the uh, Me Too movement. I mean, 
uh, women across the country are sending a clear sign that you know they are fed up, and for good reason that they are fed up with the things that they've had to deal with in the past, and the things that many women deal with. Uh, a ton of way too many women still deal with today and a lot of those things have taken some time to come to head and and now we're right in the middle of it and people are finding themselves you know um, having to be accountable for things they did many years ago and you know i think we will all agree that this is something that's needed you know this isn't something that that will stand anymore um and both of the cases are also you know he said she said there's really not any sort of um tangible evidence for for either case you know you just have the account of you know a, a woman and the account of a man and and that really makes trials and hearings as you can see today tough because it's about who you believe more you know it's about who, who how many people can come forward and say you know in bill cosby case uh, i believe one of the strongest pieces of evidence against him was the amount of women that came forward and you know it, it's hard to discredit that many women it's, and even with kavanaugh and even though there's um one woman now, you know, that testified in the hearing today. There's another one that, that is, uh, I, I'm not sure of her name, but there's another claim out there as well against him. And so, you know, these these cases are tough to prove, but with the, the numbers that are coming forward, that's making them a lot hard, a lot easier to um, to um, hold them accountable for. Mm -hmm. and Jason, I have a question from like a legal standpoint. With the president, um, he, he's made a lot of comments about Kavanaugh, and he said the girl, she was she was drunk at the time. How does that play into, like, if you're going to court and then you have the man on the highest stage commenting about the case or, and, like, kind of discrediting the female or the woman in the case, how does that work as far as that process? Can something be done from a legal standpoint? Um, I, well, one thing, I, I mean, I, I assume that, that he's, the executive still has um, his freedom of speech, but... Uh, um, this is not my legal opinion, but if I could tell you one thing, it's that do not listen to anything that that the president has to say about this. As you can see, you know, it's it's clouding things up. And, I mean, just from the tweets in general, I mean, he's very loose with what he says, and he has no legal background. He has no idea what he can and cannot do. He does them, and people either rebuke him for it or they, you know, find a way to make it happen. So I don't think, you know, Donald Trump is thinking about what he can and can't say. He's just saying it now and dealing with the repercussions later, as we've already seen in the past. Mm -hmm. Hey, Jay, uh, let, let's start with, uh, I want to get a little deeper into Cosby. Um, uh, what what was he accused of? And, and and as you saw, what was his defense strategy? And was it a good, well, obviously it wasn't a good strategy. <laughs> but. And so, so Bill Cosby was charged with three counts of aggravated indecent assault. Um, that's Pennsylvania's version of the statute, um, aggravated sexual assault. And so what, what the claim against him was that he and the one the Andrea Constant, she came to his house at one point and he gave her some pills and the pills incapacitated her and you know she wasn't able to resist him and from there um, they had sex with people they had sex and so she's saying that it was non consensual and that he had drugged her and done this and he's saying that he didn't do it at all and that it, it's it was made up and so a lot of the, I mean, the strongest evidence against him. Previously, he had settled a lawsuit with this, with Andrea Constance for, um, I don't know, I have the number written down, but I want to say three, almost, I think $3.4 million. So, in mm -hmm. what happened is when they were investigating that lawsuit, well, when they, yeah, when they were investigating that suit, before they settled, Bill Cosby took a deposition. And so a deposition is when 
the attorneys on both sides get everyone together and and pretty much record a um, an examination like what would happen in court. You know, they ask them questions and they answer. And the reason you have a deposition is to save it for later, so that you don't have to worry about people forgetting. You want to get a deposition so everything's clear while their minds are still right. And in this deposition, um, Bill Cosby said that <laughs> that he had that he got drugs to give to women for sex. And I mean, the thing that I mean, I know he. I guess the drug was quaaludes. Um, that's not a popular drug anymore, but um, it the, was in my generation. And so he was. I know he said some other things. He was saying that um, you know it was like giving. You know it was like having a drink. You know, kind of just loosening people up. You know, it was a drug that you know kids were doing for fun. And I mean, the, the the tough thing is that's a damaging piece of evidence, especially in today where that is sexual. You know, nowadays, you know, if 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 a woman is, you know, and they. Yeah, if a woman does not have the ability to, you know, make a, a rational decision because of alcohol and, you know, two people have sex, I mean, that's considered rape. And so that's what's wow. really hard, especially for some of these old timers that that are, you know, you know, being brought into court now because it didn't, I'm sure it didn't used to be like that. So Cosby right. admitting that, you know, he had, he had done that was a, a key piece of evidence, um, as well as, you know, the amount of women that came forward. So... In the first case, you know, there was, as you know, there was two different trials. The first um, case, the prosecution tried to bring, uh, I, I want to say, well, they tried to bring more than one um, witness to say that this had happened to her. And they only let Andrea Constan take the stand. And so the jury, you know, when they're weighing Bill Cosby versus um, Andrea Constan, that's really in and his statement, that's really all the evidence they had. So when we talk about Bill Cosby's defense, you know, I have, and I read a lot of, some people were surprised that they didn't have much of a defense. They, they didn't need one. Um, as, you, as you may already know, it's, it's the state's burden to prove. You know, they have to prove every element beyond a reasonable doubt to every juror. You know, it only takes one juror to say, no, this doesn't happen, this didn't happen for him to be found not guilty. So on um, that evidence alone um they found him well if they didn't find him not guilty he wasn't acquitted it was just a um seriously uh, a hung jury so they they couldn't decide <laughs> after deliberating for that time and mm. so after that <clears throat> excuse me the prosecutor said that he wanted to get it right back on the table they wanted to see justice they wanted to have it they wanted to have it quickly and as you can see you know they turned around and had another trial but this time Instead of only allowing one um, bad act witness, um, I won't get into the legal term of bad act witness is, but long story short, it's just a witness that can say that, you know, we don't believe that what you did in the past means that you did it this time, but we can admit a past um, witness to say that you did something to them in order to show something like a plan or motive. So here they allowed five different witnesses in the second trial. They wanted 19, but they only allowed five. And so, you know, when the jury is weighing five separate um, witnesses, the same, the same story happened to them, along with his statement that, you know, he got drugs um, in order to give the women for sex, um, I think those things put together really helped the jury uh, kind of swing against them there. So in a sense, it's kind of like the if it look like if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck. It's a duck. So they presented that if he's been noted for this, then he's obviously done it instead of having the evidence to prove it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. And I mean, ex- especially when it's, um, these sexual assault crimes are extremely hard to prove when it's a decade later, you know, when it's, if it's, if it's current, you know, you can try to find different ways to pin them down or, you know, get witnesses to come forward. But, you know, after all this time has passed, all you really have is Bill Cosby's words, you know, America's, you know, uh, America's dad and, you know, Andrea Constant and, so, you know, the, the sheer amount of witnesses that came forward, when you have five women telling the same type of story along with Bill Cosby's um, own account of, um, you know, giving women quaaludes, that, that really looks bad for him. And one key piece of evidence that was, well, that um, that was denied admission, um, there was a in-between trial. Um, Bill Cosby's new attorneys filed a motion because supposedly there was there were one of Andrea Constan's roommates, you know, on their basketball trip said that they had seen something like that on TV and she made the comment that, oh, well, I could do that, you know, I mean, I, I could say that that happened to me even though it didn't and I could make real money, but I could use that money to start a business or something like that. Wow. And Bill Cosby's um, lawyers made that argument and, and they they um, submitted the motion to the court and, and it was denied. And so, and, but with that, I mean, after that, Bill Cosby, one of his past attorneys um, got off the case, and so who knows if that, that was a factor or not, but it seems like there may have been some merit there, but once that is out of the picture, once there's nobody that's uh, first, there's nobody discrediting um, Andrea Constant, you're in the middle of the Me Too movement, and, you know, along with the evidence that was presented in the women, you know, it just did not go well for, for Bill Cosby. As you can see. Hey, Jason, and it's Alana. Um, I think you made a really good point. You know, no is no. And people still don't understand that. Society doesn't understand that. And I think it's so hard to, you know, see, once again, America's dad and so many people went to go, you know, watch his show and watch the reruns and continue to see him on television. And people say, well, why would he why would he want to do that? He had all these women line up. Why would he? do something like that. And I have to continue to remind them that it's not about that. It's about power, you know, and that, that is the prime thing. Um, and I still don't understand why it's so hard, even though now he's committed and he's going to jail, like he's in jail, why people still can't come to terms that, you know, yes, this is what happened. Um, but, you know, going back to Kavanaugh, um, the way he acted in, you know, the courtroom setting, a lot of people said that he didn't have any coaching and he was himself, you know, and to look at how they asked him a question, were you a drunk in high school? I don't know if you saw that, but he turned the question back to them. Um, I didn't know what your thoughts were on his behavior in the courtroom. I didn't get to watch the whole thing, but I did watch parts and I saw that he was very emotional at times. And, you know, um, a little plug, you know, I'm the uh, president of the Black Law Student Association, but it was in our group chat. You know, people were talking all day about what had been said and what was going on. And I have one of the, what I, well, one thing that they asked him is, have you ever passed out or had memory lapses from alcohol? And his answer was, I don't know. Have you? I want to know about you, Senator. And I was, people of color don't have this, right. you know, people of color don't get this leeway to say things like that to the Senate. And right. one thing that one of the my fellow Boston members brought to my attention is this is a job interview. You know, he thinks that he's this is unfair, you know, he's crying on T V. I mean this isn't this isn't court. This isn't trial. You know, this is allegations against you that now you have to face. You know, this is what every other person mm-hmm. in the country would have to do. 
you know, Kavanaugh seems to, you know, the tables are turned, and now he's understanding, you know, you life isn't like you've had it <laughs> always. You know, things aren't going to be handed to you like that anymore. And, and now he's having to face some of those allegations. So I, I'm not surprised at all to hear that, you know, that he, I, I hate to I hate use the term, but it seems like, you know, like white privilege. You know, it seems yeah. like Kavanaugh <laughs> believes he has way more ability to do and say what he wants once in front of these people because he has Donald Trump behind him and, you know, he, he believes he can do no wrong. The first thing that struck me is that, man, who's this white guy, man? I mean, he's like actually did everything but cursed him out, you know? And I think, Jake, you put your, to me, this was like the portrait of white male privilege. Like, how dare you? You know, I mean, he was like getting ready to like jump in there. And, and you're right. I mean, if you contrast that, with Anita Hill, for example, um, I remember that was sort of, I was almost in the middle of that, as of you in 1991, and they were they were almost crucifying this woman. I mean, everybody, where they were really bending over backwards, you know, for, um, uh, in, in this case, for doc, uh, Dr. Ford, they were like going out of their way to, you know, and I, I was thinking this whole model of, of white virtue, white innocence, and contrasting that with how Anita Hill was treated, it, I think on display, it seems like what we saw from both sides was white privilege, white innocence, the fair maiden. We saw all this whiteness on trial. It's, it's just amazing. And there's a picture, uh, it was a, a meme one of my friends posted, and it says, you know, this is what Christine Bailey Ford is looking at when she describes her sexual assault. And it's a table full of old white men, you know, maybe some young ones, but that's the reality of it, you know? So it's, but here, you know, you have people trying to find ways to be sympathetic to Kavanaugh rather than holding him accountable and, you know, taking his accuser, you know, more seriously as, as they could. Hey, 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 Jace, we only have a few minutes left. One last question. Um, and, and by the way, Cosby's publicist uh, called that trial the most racist and sexist, sexist trial in the history of the United States, really. But um, do, do you think the way that we address sexual assault has officially tr uh, changed? And, and do you think that we're more willing to believe survivors and victims of sexual assault? Uh, are we more willing to hold perpetrators um, uh, accountable for their actions? Or do you think this going to, you know, male entitlement is still going to prevail? Well, I'd like to say yes. The one thing that I would say that, that has helped a lot of this is the amount of evidence and the amount of support from women around the country, from men around the country. You know, everyone who is supporting this movement plays a part because as soon as, you know, somebody gets forgotten about, as soon as it does not get the publicity that some of these cases are having, they do slip because as soon as something can get swept under the rug, especially when you're talking about, you know, rich white men, it will. So I think that this movement is really opening people's eyes up to what women have dealt with in the past, what they still deal with every day. And so I believe people are more willing to accept it, but I can't say that there's not a, a, a large population that probably would like to continue to sweep things under the rug and go about business as usual. Hey guys, I know we have to close out the show, but Alana and I spoke to some students at Howard University and Xavier University of Louisiana about their thoughts on Cosby and Kavanaugh. The first students you'll hear are from Howard University. I'm Isaiah Parks. I'm a senior sports management major from Long Island, New York. And my thoughts on the Bill Cosby case is, you know, I think he should have been convicted because of what he did. Although 
there's white people that have done the same thing, if not worse, and they're still walking around like they never did anything. And I don't think that's exactly fair. So, you know, to see them in handcuffs, walking to, I guess, custody, it's kind of sad because he's 81 years old, and I feel like, you know, they kind of want him to die in jail because, you know, given his current state, we just don't know if he's going to last three to ten years in jail. But like I said, there's white people, right? The president has been accused of sexually assaulting women, and he's the president of the United States. He's doing what he wants to do, signing documents and putting stuff into legislation. Yet, you know, with Bill Cosby, I feel like I think it's hard to take race out of it because the system is set up against us as black people. And he's the example. Kaylin Culliver, sports broadcasting major, senior from Los Angeles, California. And as far as the Bill Cosby trial, um, I think he deserves it. I love Bill Cosby. I'm a fan of the Cosby show. But honestly, you shouldn't rate women. It's not okay. And for him to get three or ten years, yes, yes, he's old. I don't think he'll survive that. He's so old. He's blind. But he deserves it. You can't rate women. It's not okay. And for so many women to come out and speak against him and for him to be so nonchalant towards it is a problem. You can't. If rape culture is changing. It's progressive. You can't rate women. It's not okay. So he deserves to do the time. And as far as Kavanaugh, same thing. There's no statute of limitations on rape and sexual harassment, sexual assault. You have to serve your time. And for him to be just, like I said, so nonchalant as well towards these women, like, okay, well, I'm going to be in the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter. It's not okay. You have to serve your time. That's it. We're in a Me Too movement. You, you can't do things like that. We're progressive. America's moving forward. You're either going to do the right thing and abide by the law or go to jail. That's it. My name is Mercedes Holcomb. I'm a senior public health major with a minor in creative writing at Xavier University of Louisiana, and I'm from San Francisco, California. My opinion on the Kavanaugh case is I'm very disappointed on Kavanaugh's reaction to Cory Booker's question. Um, Proverbially, I would have liked Kavanaugh to answer the questions without hesitation. He seemed like he had hesitation in his questions. He was getting red in the face as if he was trying to cover up a lie. Um, And I find it disappointing that he, at this time in 2018, that he has a problem with women opening up about being victims of rape and statutory rape. Wow, I there's no words. I mean, students from Howard and Xavier made some really great points. I think one of the points that struck out to me in the beginning was that you have to take race out of the situation and look purely at the facts. And secondly, that rape culture is changing, especially because we're in the Me Too movement and people have the right to speak up for themselves. And this is exactly what the women are doing right now. And for Kavanaugh, a decision will be made soon. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell made a commitment to holding a vote this week on Friday. And even Senator Jeff Flake said that they hope that all the FBI investigation will be in before the vote. Hey, hey well, listen, you know, we're, we're going to have to leave it there. But, but Jason, me, hey, thank you so much, man. Uh, this has been wonderful. Uh, good luck uh, at University of Wisconsin Law School. Uh, you are brilliant as advertised. So thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. And um, when we come back, we're going to switch gears and we're going to turn to the NBA and we're going to look at how recruiting strategies have changed. Uh, we'll be right back.
the much anticipated 2019 NBA season is upon us and people have been speculating all summer about how LeBron James is going to do with the Lakers and whether the Golden State Warriors will be able to resolve internal problems and hold on their reign. Now, while that's all fine, well and good, talent scouts have already been searching for the next generation of superstars. Khalid Green, who's a NBA scout and former high school basketball coach, is on the line with us to tell us about what recruitment is like today and how crazy it's likely to get. Hey, hey welcome to the show, Khalid. Thank you. Hey, 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 listen, man. You know, uh, we, we, you know, we've known each other forever, uh, and uh, you've been scouting forever, probably, probably whether you knew it or not, since you were in high school in Brooklyn. But how, how did you get into the scouting business? Basically, when I got out of college and I started my own AAU program, I was an AAU coach. Uh, I guess when I was about twenty-two. We went on to be very successful with local Brooklyn kids, and we traveled um, all over from Tennessee, Memphis, Tennessee, to Orlando, Florida, to the Nationals, and uh, we took off. Uh, we, were, we were sponsored by Adidas and Sonny Vaccaro, and you know we had a good run at the at the different national tournament. And from there, uh, all of our kids got recruited and got great exposure. Hmm. You know, you started these AAU programs, and what's the attractiveness? I mean, why is this? Why is this so important? Why is this pipeline? This this these raw resources. I mean, to, you know, why is that so important to the industry? Why, you know, why is it so crucial? Why is it so vital? Um, I think it's vital because a lot of the AAU coaches. Um, they're, they're in the trenches, so they start off in the hood. They're in the community, they're in the ghetto, uh, where a lot of these kids come from. So they become more so. They become more than coaches. They become mentors. They become big brothers. They become the big OGs of the hood, and they raise these kids. You know, a lot of you know, as we know, a lot of our, our family structure does not involve the 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 father. So they become the father um, that may not be in the home, but they may be the father of the kid that's in the community. And they raise them. They 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 put them in schools. They mentor them in the best of their ability. So um, that's that's where the pipeline starts, and it usually starts from ten years old. And the college coach is not concerned about them until probably about sixteen, seventeen years old. Mm. Hey, Khalid, this is Tiffany. I just have a question about that relationship between the NBA scout and the AAU coach or AAU staff, uh, whatever tournament you guys go to. If that relationship is still there because of the fact that now you've been going to colleges, do you guys still check in and scout guys like, okay, he's going to be something like you guys have now at Brooklyn, D'Angelo Russell. Were you guys watching him as he was in high school or have, did you guys like kind of step away from that relationship? So let me give you an example. It's funny that you mentioned D'Angelo Russell. Okay. So there's a coach named Ray Miller who was the um, coach at St. Pat's. He was assistant coach at St. Patrick's in Jersey. He used to recruit from me when I was in AAU. Now he's at Monteverdi, where uh, D'Angelo Russell went to school. And 
I was able to, you know, find out about D'Angelo Russell's black background from Ray Miller. So, you know, we've had that relationship. You know, that relationship started before I even knew D'Angelo Russell. And in AAU, this is all, AAU is all about relationships, grassroots relationships, and um, it really starts from a from a very organic um, situation. And. I've heard this. I don't know if you've heard this, Khalid, but there's this philosophy that sometimes when athletes transition to college, it takes out some of that pure athleticism that they have out of high school, where the NBA, they have the people to nurture them and the the competitiveness to bring them to that level of being that stellar athlete, um, that sometimes the college level takes that out of them. Do you believe that philosophy at all with the rule change and bringing it back to guys as soon as they get out of high school going to the league? In other words, does the college system take the take the wild <laughs> out of the athlete? Does it kind of take the ghetto out of the athlete? It depends on the, the college coach. I think some college coaches are not acclimated to the um, – organic, intrinsic, natural ways that uh, NBA, that, a, that a basketball player can be creative. And it's based on their environment. So, like, you know, if, you, if you're in Brooklyn, you know, a lot of, when I came up, a lot of brothers were coming up with, with you know, when, when, you, when you're in the ghetto or when you're in the hood, you know, a lot of stuff that you come up with is, is come up, you come up with it based on who, what comes out of you instinctively. And you can't teach that. You know, you can't teach when Kobe does a 360 layup or when Allen Iverson, you know, has that fire to dunk on somebody after making a crazy crossover that he was known for. That can't be teached. So, you know, I think a lot of coaches are not, uh, they, they don't understand that type of, bas- that brand of basketball. And, that goes on. That goes back to the AAU coach, where he has to understand where he's sending his player, so that player can be conducive to that environment and to that to that level of coaching. Because all coaches at the college level are not, um, they're not going to adhere to that level of of, of instinctive or creative um, basketball prowess. Mm-hmm. Uh, our guest is the great Khaled Green. He's a uh, scout. For the Brooklyn Nets, um, I, I, I'd also be remiss if, uh, since this is an HBCU podcast, to uh, if I didn't mention that Khalid is also a proud graduate of Morehouse College in Atlanta. Yes, uh, sir. Very proud graduate. <laughs> and on the line, of course, you know Tiffany Tiffany Hoyt is from uh, Howard, and uh, Alana Barefield is from Xavier. So you know you 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 got the HBCU family. This is the one thing baby actually. Huh? Oh really? Yep. Oh wow. Oh, what did you major in? Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't put me on the spot. I don't know. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll roll with it. Yeah, they're gonna get him for this. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know where I graduated in. Uh, she, um, so she's a little older than me. I'm 45, so she's about 48. What she graduated no, at? No, excuses. <laughs> but, you're right, you're right, you're right, <laughs> you're right. You know, since you, since you went to a HBCU, you're in the business of scouting. And, you know, we talked about relationships of 
how the NBA scouters and AAU have this great relationship. So how do HBCUs get that relationship with NBA scouters to come, you know, see their players, um, talk to them to maybe hopefully one day make it to the NBA? You know, unfortunately, a lot of the best talent is not in HBCU. Integration changed all of that. So that does not mean that NBA players are not in the HBCU, but scouts should have relationships with black coaches to find out who's coming out. And that means that, you know, like last year, I uh, reached out to Coach Brewer at uh, Morehouse College uh, he had a good player, and I reached out to him, and I went and actually saw him play, and that was beneficial to me. So I think that scouts should really get involved with CIAA, the MEAC, and other divisions that uh, you know feature our black colleges, and um, get acclimated with the coaches and, and the coaching staff, so we can maybe. Re- not recruit their players, but at least know who their players are for the future. Well, to the defense of the scout, I think that the HBCUs have just been unable to find that signature athlete that can be productive at the the next level. So you guys are able to really come out and want to recruit their guys or want to talk to their athlete. So what would you suggest to the HBCUs in finding a signature player, a player that they can get that can make it on the next level? Um. The problem with the HBCUs is that a lot of them don't have the funding to that matches the recruitment level of the Kentuckys and North Carolinas. So when you're doing the recruitment, a lot of these kids are seeing these big facilities where the where the coaches are selling them on the fact that they'll get NBA uh, level player development, they'll get the NBA level. Uh, uh, strength and training and the HBCUs can't match that. So I think if I was an HBCU coach what I would recruit them on is the environment. You know, you will get sincere love, you will get a different level of uh, culture and that really uh, is, is the sell for me. Some co- some of these players would, would not care about that quite honestly. I'm, I'm just being frank. But there are some there are some players that grew up in a black environment that would uh, look at the black environment as something that would be positive, and opposed to a environment that you know you're in the red state and they really don't care for you as much as as they should, and they they probably won't because you're you're an athlete. Mm. Um, a lot of these kids are just athletes to these to the university, and they're not citizens. And, you know, it, it, it's, uh, reflect, it's definitely a reflection of the environment. Um, would you say that, would you say that there's a particular branding style beyond what you said of like selling them on the love, like a school that you said, like their brand is perfect. They might not necessarily be a Duke where everyone's looking at them already but their brand is set up in a way that recruits who are willing to like take a look at them, whether it's graphic design. Is there an organ out there that you're like, oh, they do it right. I know from talking to AAU coaches that this is the model of what the kids are liking right now. Yeah, I mean, like it depends on what you want. Like players, most players look to go to the NBA. 
So Kentucky is the brand that gets you to the NBA as far as most high school players. Um, Carolina used to be that, but I think Kentucky, Kentucky leads the, leads the, uh, university system as the, as the, uh, college that gets you into the NBA. So I do believe that brand is important. Uh, you know, obviously Michael, uh, North Carolina uses Michael Jordan as their, as their brand. Uh, but I don't know if North Carolina players are exceeding like in the NBA, like Kentucky players are. In fact, I know they're not. You know, DeMarcus Cousins, Anthony Davis, uh, Rondo, um, all are uh, mm-hmm. Kentucky players that exceeded in the NBA. I don't know in the last few years that anybody in the college system has exceeded in the NBA like Kentucky players. So that brand uh, stands alone in, in college. And, of course, they are the kings of the one and done. Do you believe that there's a space for that extra athlete, like that athlete that isn't at Kentucky, to get on a roster? Um, isn't at Kentucky to get on a roster? Yeah, you know, and and that and that's proven because there's kids that transfer out of Kentucky. Uh, I think the big kid, um, I think his name is Kyle Wilter. Wilter. He uh, transferred out of Kentucky and went to Gonzaga, and he had a great career at college, in college at Gonzaga, um, but he did not, I don't, I'm not even sure if he's on the NBA roster, I'm not sure, quite honestly, but um, there are kids that, you know, move on from Kentucky that, you know, might be the ninth, I think you're talking about the eighth, ninth, tenth man at Kentucky, and may be a good player at another university, but those players are kind of marginal in the NBA in the NBA world, and you know you can kind of get that type of player. Um, you can get a, a top-notch player at a Seton Hall, um, and he and he comes out of Seton Hall as a you know maybe second-round pick, which is no different than being a, a, a low draft pick uh, in the first round at a Kentucky when it's all said and done. Hey, it's Alana. Um, You know, you mentioned about how athletes growing up in a black environment and sometimes they want to be more than just a student athlete. You know, as a scouter, do you look to see if they're, you know, if they're speaking out loud about what's happening? Like, for instance, Colin Kaepernick or if they're on their social media or if they're speaking out about sexuality or, you know, their rights as an athlete, but also a citizen at the same time. Um, you know, and if they do that, does that hinder them from, you know, making it to the NBA because they have a voice? Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, that, I, think that, I think that's a great question. Um, I think we would be naive to think that some of the issues that a, a college kid, you know, a college kid might have a platform on social media and he might in, endorse Kaepernick or endorse um, other issues. I, would, I think we'd be naive to think that 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 some scouts won't hold that against them, um, based on how they were raised. And I think it's I think it's a tailor-made situation. Uh, for me, I would not hold it against them, but I'm sure, you know, from my experience in, in nine to ten years in the NBA, that some NBA scouts would hold it hold hold that against them. Mm-hmm. Hey, Khalid, we only have a couple seconds left, man. Um, what, what's exciting you about this season? I mean, what do you think are the, are the, the major storylines for you going into the season, into the new season? 
Um, for me, uh, I definitely, you know, I think Golden State is the best team. Um, I'm, in, I'm interested to see how DeMarcus Cousins fits in with that. LeBron is a story amongst himself in L.A., so, and he has a cast of characters, one I coach named Lance Stevenson, so, and he has others. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that, that crew fits because they're not, you know, other than him, there's no, there's no real winners on the, on the, on the Los Angeles Lakers other than him and, uh, Rondo. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested to see how that works. Uh, Kawhi Leonard, obviously at Toronto, uh, I think he's one of the most, one of the best players in the league. So I, I want to see how, if he can get them out of the East, that would really be a statement for him. And um, the, the last story for me would be Kyrie. He's the most prolific ball handler in the league and one of the best scorers for his size. Will he lead them out the, league, out the East? And not only that, will he stay in Boston? So <laughs> those are some of the narratives I'll, I'll be uh, following. And, and last but not least, uh, are you going to see Space Jam? <laughs> I, I might see it on Netflix or whatever, but I don't think I'm going to. The, I don't think I'll be going to the theater to see it. I just actually came from seeing Eleven Nine Fort Fahrenheit, which is a very good movie. But I didn't see Space Jam once, so why would I see Space Jam two? <laughs> oh, all right. I I didn't either. Uh, hey, you know, we could talk about this forever. In fact, we will throughout the season. You're going to come back. But, yeah, but I know you need to run. But before we close out, I, I have a recruiting question for you, Tiffany and Alana. Uh, we just spoke about the recruitment process for athletes heading, heading into the NBA. But if you could choose any NBA player, retired or current, to coach the men's or women's team at your school, who would it be and why? Um, Kobe Bryant, hands down. I think he, he knows the game in and out. As you can see, he's, was in the industry for years. Um, I would want him to, uh, coach the women's basketball team at Xavier. I think he, you know, he supports everyone, especially from, I don't know if you heard, like last year, he was at the NCAA for the women's team, um, you know, Notre Dame one. And he tweeted out one of the star players saying, you did a, such a great job. The girl tweeted back and they had a whole conversation on Twitter. So just to see that, how his personality really just shines and how he is as a person, I think could help Xavier in the long run. I think for me, it'd have to be Jason Kidd. I saw what he did in Brooklyn. And I think that even even with the Bucks, he had an opportunity to take some young guys and take them to a, a higher level. And I think that's what HBCU basketball we need. Uh, more of us, we need coaches that are willing to grind it out and train the athlete in order to get them to a level that comp- can compete at a high stage. And I think that's just what we're missing and what Jason Kidd brings to the table. And he has a lot of like question marks and he's hard on his athletes. But I think that he does that because he understands what it takes to be a winner. Uh, Khalid, what about, same question to you, who would you want to coach at Morehouse? Um, I'll take LeBron James. <laughs> I think LeBron <laughs> James has one of the highest IQs uh, in the game ever. And I like his off-the-court stances that, um, as far as him, uh, you know, starting his own school about uh, regarding his, uh, I like his stance against Donald Sterling at the time. 
So I think, you know, Morehouse kids or children, uh, uh, boys would need that type of leadership, and I think he could definitely provide that. Hmm. All right. Uh, Aaron was asking me who would I want to coach in Morgan, and I was like kind of thinking, you know what? i go with Lionel Hollins. You know, I think I know Lionel Hollins, very old school, and I know uh, uh, Khalid, you saw him firsthand in Brooklyn. Uh, I won't put you on the spot, right. what you thought. But I, I, I've always liked Lionel. I liked him as a player. And I know, you know, he's an old school coach. And sometimes I think that, right. you know, that can, it was a place like Morgan and HBCU. I think, you know, a guy like that who's kind of old school, no nonsense, could be just what a program needs. I like Lionel Howard. He's an OG. Now you get an A plus for that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, 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 Khalid. Again, man, thanks so much uh, for coming on the show, man. And I'd like you to join us throughout the season because you uh, have a ton of insight, uh, particularly about the recruiting process. And by the way, I didn't say this, but um, Tiffany has a deep recruiting pedigree herself. Uh, she's really into the whole scouting thing, right, Tiffany? You, you're sort of like a, you, you're, you're not sort of, but you're a scout yourself, right? I'm I'm talking to a legend right now, so now nah, I don't have any experience now. Nah, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just trying to learn it all because uh, that's definitely something I'm interested in doing with the future. All right, we'll definitely talk to him. Hey, 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 Kali, thank you so much, man. Okay, thank y'all. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, if there's anything you the audience, the listeners, would like us to cover. Or if you just want to leave us a comment telling us how great the show is, tweet us at the undefeated hashtag Rodenfellows. Uh, you can also contact us directly. I'm on Twitter at WC Roden. That's W-C-R-H-O-D-E-N. And I'm on Twitter at underscore Alana B underscore. That's underscore A-L-L-A-N-A-B underscore. And I'm on Instagram, Pictogram, at T-T-A Legend. T-T-A-L-E-G-E-N-D. All right. Hey, well, listen, thank you for listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows podcast. Uh, this show is produced by Aaron Mathewson. Uh, special thanks to Tarika Fosper-Brasby and to Kyrie Williams. Uh, get all the HBCU 468 podcasts as well as the plug, the right time, with Bamani Jones and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another scintillating HBCU podcast. And don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>